Book of Mormon Prophecy, a podcast series by Avraham Giliotti, Ph.D. 9. Who or what is the Lord's arm? Why does Isaiah use the metaphor of God's arm to identify a person? Does God have one or two arms? What are the key end-time roles of God's arms? Welcome, everybody, to podcast number nine. Who or what is the Lord's arm? And this is where we have to get Isaiah's definition of things, not our own definition that we superimpose upon Isaiah. doesn't matter what him say, what anybody else says. We've got to get to what Isaiah is saying. Of course, nothing is obvious in Isaiah, so it requires searching to find out the truth. And that's what we're going to do. Well, first of all, I want to go to 1 Nephi 14, 28. Nephi is forbidden to say more. As you know, Nephi had a vision all the way to the end of the world, to the coming of the Lord. Behold, I, Nephi, am forbidden that I should write the remainder of the things which I saw and heard. He was right there, seeing and hearing things. And I'm like John the Revelator, who was in vision on the Lord's day. The Lord's day being the day of judgment at the end of the world. So what were the things then, do you suppose, that he was forbidden to say? Nephi. Well, he starts quoting Isaiah at that point in time. Quotes Isaiah 48 and 49 which talk about God's end-time servant and also talk about the exodus out of Babylon and talk about the arm of the Lord and so forth. So is Nephi trying to tell us something by quoting Isaiah that he can't tell us directly? And the answer is clearly yes, because after those chapters, he picks up the same thread as he had previously and was talking about. So you have to search these things in order to figure those things out. And as I mentioned before, searching is not just reading a chapter a day, making those kind of connections. So one of the things Nephi says in 1 Nephi 22, 10 through 12, we have read this before, but he's quoting Isaiah 52, 10. God makes bare his arm. And that's what we're discussing today. I would, my brethren, that you should know that all kindreds of the earth cannot be blessed unless he shall make bare his arm in the eyes of the nations. Wherefore the Lord God will proceed to make bare his arm in the eyes of all the nations. So you see that it's a worldwide event, not the time we've experienced thus far. In bringing about his covenants and his gospel unto those who are the house of Israel. As we know, we're the Gentiles who take the gospel to the house of Israel, Ephraimite Gentiles. That's our end-time role, as we've mentioned before. Now, the Lord's covenants and his gospel, of course, belong to Israel. They've been on loan to us, the wild branches, because the house of Israel rebelled and the gospel was taken from them and it went to the Gentiles, to us. But now it goes back to the house of Israel, through the agency of us Gentiles, as we've covered thus far in our previous podcasts, it says, Wherefore he will bring them again out of captivity, and they shall be gathered together to the lands of their inheritance. That's the house of Israel. And who gathers them? Well, we do. 
So they're gathered out of captivity. That means they've been under a covenant curse. A covenant curse because a long time ago, at least, they rebelled against God and the gospel was taken from them. But we know that once they believe again, that they'll be gathered to lands of inheritance and released from captivity. Of course, if they're captive, that means some extraordinary power of God must be manifest in those who gather them. That's stronger than the power that holds them captive. And as they shall be gathered to lands of their inheritance, that is a covenant blessing. So the Lord reverses their circumstances from curse to blessing at that time. Now let's figure out what the Lord's arm is. The arm of the Lord that will be revealed or made bare in the eyes of all the nations at some point in time. We go to Isaiah 51 verse 5. The two arms of God that we have there defined. He says, My righteousness shall be at hand and my salvation proceed. My arms shall judge the peoples. So there we have it. We have righteousness and salvation in parallel with the two arms of God. Telling you that righteousness and, and salvation are the two arms of God. They personify these arms. But what is righteousness and what is salvation? Well, salvation, we know, is a word that defines Jehovah in, in the book of Isaiah. But it's also the name of Jesus. In Hebrew, Yeshua is the very same noun, salvation. So the name Jesus means salvation. It's not Joshua. Don't make that mistake. And righteousness is also a person in the book of Isaiah, a person who personifies righteousness. He's an exemplar of righteousness. As it says, the isles anticipate me awaiting my arm. At some point in time, the arm of the Lord will be revealed through the isles. And he will begin his ministry there in the isles, which is the Americas, by definition, from other scriptures, as we know. All right, then we go to Isaiah 33, verse 2. Jehovah is his people's arm of salvation. As it says, be our arm from morning to morning, our salvation in troubled times. So the prophet is calling the Lord his people's arm. He is an arm. And he's also our salvation. Be our arm from morning to morning, our salvation in troubled times. Because in those times of the end of the world, we'd be living from day to day, from morning to morning, wondering what the world's going to bring this time around, and anticipating more troubles ahead, of course. That's when they need the Lord's arm to intervene for them. The arm is a metaphor that's also a code name of the Lord's of the Lord Himself and of His servant. Let me read in Isaiah 59, 16, God's servant is his arm of righteousness. As it says in parallel here, his own arm brought about salvation for him, his righteousness rallied to his cause. Now, the arm there is in parallel in the synonymous parallel with righteousness. So there we see that righteousness is the other arm of God, the two arms of God. 
that embrace his people, that intervene on behalf of his people, righteousness and salvation. The arm of righteousness brings about salvation because he's a forerunner of God's coming, of Jehovah's coming to reign upon the earth. And of course, Jehovah personifies salvation. Like coming unto Christ means coming unto salvation. And the arm of the Lord prepares the way for the coming of the Lord among God's people of the house of Israel. In order to do that, he must be revealed to all nations because all nations is where the remnants of the house of Israel are scattered. They've been scattered abroad to, among all nations. Let me move on to Isaiah 41.2. And we see that, that this righteousness is the person very clearly here. Who has raised up righteousness from the east? Of course, from the east is where the angel of the east comes from in the book of Revelation. And it turns out from a process of deduction that he is the same person as the angel from the east, calling him to the place of his foot. So when we put all these scriptures together, we see that this angel from the east, or this person called righteousness who comes from the east, comes through the promised land, the Lord's foot. And of course, the promised land is in relation to Palestine. So that would be, the east in relation to Palestine would be possibly the land of America. That is exactly where the rabbis say that their David, their Messiah, their latter-day servant of God is coming from. Calling him to the place of his foot, who has delivered nations to him, toppled their rulers, rendering him as dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow. So this person, righteousness, has amazing power given to him over other nations, over rulers and nations. Now, how did he get this power, and when did he get this power? We have to ask those questions, because we know from Isaiah's patterns that no one receives God's power unless he first passes some severe test of loyalty to God. Everybody who ascends to a higher spiritual level and is thus empowered has to go through a descent phase of trials and tribulations and be tested every which way to see if he will remain loyal to God. And then, like Nephi, the son of Helaman, when the Lord knows he's been loyal under every situation, then the Lord empowers him with power over the elements and so forth. As Nephi, the son of Helaman, was translated, we get the idea that this person will also be translated. That is what I call an ascent phase. A person is reborn. He goes through ruin and humiliation and his descent phase of trials and tribulations, and he's reborn to a higher spiritual level, and that is an ascent phase where he ascends to the next highest spiritual level. And that is how he gets power over his enemies. And we know that from the theology of Isaiah, the general theology. Next we go to God gives his servant power over Babylon, Isaiah 48, 14 through 15. Now this is the chapter, one of the chapters that Nephi quotes in 1 Nephi 20, where he starts quoting Isaiah basically to say what he could not say himself. And I'm just quoting a couple of passages from it because we don't have room in our podcast to continue a lot further with this. So he says, All of you assemble in here, who among you foretold these things? It is him Jehovah loves. 
So this person, who Jehovah loves, is a prophet. He foretells things. He foretells things and they come to pass. Unlike other prophets, who either don't foretell anything, or they foretell things that don't come to pass. He says, it is him Jehovah loves. Of course, we know that John the Beloved was called that, and also the three Nephites were called beloved disciples. So there's a clue, a clue telling us that maybe this person is also translated at that point in time, when he's empowered, like John was and like the three Nephites were. He says, he shall perform his will in Babylon, his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. So the arm of the Lord will be against the Chaldeans, which are simply the citizens of Babylon. Babylonians, or people from a metaphorical point of view, are now subscribing to Babylon's ideology, unlike the people of Zion who subscribe to Zion's ideology, which are quite opposed to one another. He says, I myself, the Lord says, have spoken it and also called him. I have brought him and I will prosper his way. Well, what does that tell you? It tells you that the Lord has decreed that this person should come. And of course, he meets terrible opposition, as we know from other scriptures in Isaiah and the Book of Mormon. So the Lord is saying, he's kind of preempting that idea and saying, hey, I've spoken it. Whatever you say is not going to work. I'm the one who's called him. I'm going to be prospering his way. And so if you're going to oppose him, then you're on the wrong side of the divide. Here in Isaiah 51, 9 through 11, we get a better view of how God empowers his arm to lead a new exodus. And of course, the whole arm scenario has to do with Israel's restoration, Israel's end time restoration the restoration of the Jews, the ten lost tribes, and the Lamanites of today, to the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, and to the fulfilling of his covenants among them, with all its attendant blessings. So he says, Awake, arise, clothe yourself with power, O arm of the Lord. So this is a time of regeneration, like awake and arise, this resurrection imagery. Later on we see how Zion awakes and arise. In chapter 52, in the next chapter. But first you have the awakening and arising of the Lord's servant. Awake and arise, clothe yourself with power, O arm of Jehovah. Bestir yourself, as in ancient times, as in generations of old. So in other words, he's saying, like it was in the past, now it's going to be so again. It also hints at the idea that he had done things before that he's going to do again. Bestir yourself as in ancient times, as in generations of old. Was it not you who carved up Rahab, you who slew the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea? So, when we look back in the book of Exodus, what do we see? We see that the angel of God in the pillar of fire led the Exodus out of Egypt under Moses. And so it seems like Rahab being Egypt and the Pharaoh being called dragon in Isaiah here and also in the book of Ezekiel, and he also, of course, appears in the book of Revelation, the dragon opposing the work of the Lord. So here we see that this angel is going to be doing something very similar that he did in the past as a premortal angel, we might say, 
And now he's going to be doing it in the flesh. As we read on in the next uh, couple of verses, God empowers his arm to lead the new exodus. Continued. And this, of course, is quoted again in 2 Nephi 8, 9 through 11 there also. And Ezekiel mentions the dragon in, in chapter 29, verse 3, as Egypt's pharaoh. The waters of the mighty deep and made of ocean depths away by which the redeemed might pass. I'm just continuing on for previously. Wasn't that you who dried up the sea, the waters of the mighty deep, and made of ocean depths away by which the redeemed might pass? That is, the ancient, the ancient exodus out of Egypt through the Red Sea when the waters divided hither and thither. Let the ransomed of the Lord return. So now they're going to return again, this time out of Babylon, to Zion in the end time. So the ransomed and the redeemed, of course, are the elect of God that will be gathered, as other scriptures make clear. Let them come singing to Zion, their heads crowned with everlasting joy. Let them obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing flee away. All the things of the past, all the the bad memories, the the adversity, that they, the opposition, the humiliations, the persecution, the captivity, all of that will be done away and forgotten by those who are delivered and ransomed. Then we go on to the bearing of the Lord's arm as an end-time event in 3 Nephi 16, 17 through 20, again referencing Isaiah 52, verses 8 through 10, about the Lord's arm, making bare his arm. Jesus says, Then the words of the prophet Isaiah shall be fulfilled. Now we're talking about the words of Isaiah, and always, whenever they are fulfilled, it's an end-time scenario. Of course, the arm is revealed to all nations, which is a universal event, which did not happen in the time of Joseph Smith. All of Isaiah is an end-time event. Which say, Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye when the Lord shall bring again Zion, or restore Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord hath comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem, the Lord has made bare his arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. So this is a work of restoration, then, the restoration of the house of Israel, and it is fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah. Then we go on to Jews believe in Jesus as their Messiah. Of course, this restoration gathering, this is the point of these scriptures, as I'm tying them together, try to paint a picture of this scenario. The Jews who have not believed, and all of the house of Israel who have fallen into apostasy, at some point they're going to believe the gospel, and Reaccept and be received into the covenants of the Lord again. And when they do that, through the agency of the Ephraimite Gentiles, then they're going to be gathered. But it's the arm of the Lord who starts the whole thing off. It's the servant of the Lord who comes along and is empowered of God to start this whole work of restoration of the house of Israel. And as we've seen elsewhere, it is the equivalent of the great and marvelous work of the Lord, the restoration of the house of Israel. But by scriptural definition, it says, It shall come to pass that the time cometh when the fullness of my gospel shall be preached unto them, and they shall believe in me that I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and shall pray unto the Father in my name. 
Then shall their watchmen lift up their voice, and with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye. Then will the Father gather them together again, and give unto them Jerusalem for the land of their inheritance. This is Jesus speaking now. Before this Jesus also, but in a different chapter, so he's basically repeating what he said before. And then shall they break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem, for the Father hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed Jerusalem. The Father has made bare his arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of the Father, and the Father and I are one. Again, he's continuing to show how this fulfills the prophecies of Isaiah. So, it's, it's really a pity that people pass over the prophecies of Isaiah because they're all about the end time. And we're there. If you don't think we're there, read more of Isaiah and you'll begin to see it. So there it is. The fullness of the gospel is preached to them and they believe it. But we know from other scriptures that that doesn't happen until what? Until the Gentiles reject the very gospel that they have received and it turns back to the Jews. But anciently, when the gospel is rejected by the Jews and turns to the Gentiles, as I've mentioned before, now it, that situation reverses itself. And we, as a whole, reject the fullness of the gospel. But some among us take it to them. Some of us repent of our Babylonish ways, take it to them, and they believe. At that very time that the one rejects it, the other accepts it. Isn't that a huge paradox? And it's a very sad case. That good on the one hand, because now the whole house of Israel, of course, converts to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are restored to his covenants, and they blossom. Next we have, also from 3 Nephi, God empowers Zion. 3 Nephi 20, 36-37, referencing Isaiah 51 and 2. As I mentioned, when the servant awakes and arises, and God empowers him, then comes to pass Zion's awakening and arising. But that Zion consists of the house of Israel, not of the Latter-day Saints, not of the Gentiles, although we help them to establish that Zion. It says, And then shall be brought to pass that which is written, Awake again, awake, and put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dusts. Arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands about thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Now you may say, city, well, which city is that? Well, of course, the old and new Jerusalems are those cities, but in the book of Isaiah, there are two cities, and they're personified by Zion and Babylon. There are also two women, and one is the harlot Babylon, the other one is the virgin Zion. One goes into the dust, Babylon does, and Zion rises from the dust. It's a simultaneous event. So these people then are led out of captivity to lands of inheritance, from curse to blessing, as I mentioned before. All right, so in summing up, Isaiah uses the Lord's arm, a metaphor, as a code name for his end-time servant who restores Israel, who initiates the whole end-time restoration of the house of Israel. It's a person from the east in relation to Palestine. The time frame is the end-time when God's servant, 
initiates the restoration of the House of Israel? And moving forward, are we ready to learn the manner of the Jews that unlocks these scriptures? The manner of the Jews, or Jewish methodology of analyzing, helps put the scriptural pieces together of Isaiah's end-time scenario. And that's why it's so important to search. And next time, what do the scriptures say about the coming great division among God's people? And we'll be discussing that in podcast number 10. Recommended listening or reading, I suggest the book Isaiah Made Simple. It's great in audio version. It's now soon available. Thank you very much. See you next time. Thank you for joining us today. Join us next time when we learn, Is a Great Division Prophesied? Do the scriptures predict an end-time division among all people, including the Latter-day Saints? How should we prepare ourselves to choose the right?